Uh, Stephen King, Group Chief Economist and Global Head of Economics and Asset Allocation Research, HSBC, and Michael Calvi, Managing Partner, Bearing Vostok Capital Partners. Thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today here at the CBAM Conference, Global Business Symposium on BRICS and Beyond. If we begin with you, Stephen, um, tell me a little bit about how you made your analysis of the BRICS and beyond and why you came to your conclusions. You looked very carefully at commodity prices, didn't you? I did. I think that there's a big discussion about globalisation, which really tends to assume that it's good for everyone all the time. Basically, output rises and everyone's better off. But when you look at the effects of the BRICS on the rest of the world, we're increasingly finding that there are big shifts in what you might describe as relative prices. Some prices go up, like commodity prices, and other prices go down, like, for example, Western wages. Uh, So when you look at what's happening around the world, you find that there are some obvious winners. There are some relative losers, maybe even some absolute losers. And one obvious example currently is that in the UK we have this very strange mix of relatively high inflation, no wage growth. The high inflation partly reflects the higher commodity prices, and the higher commodity prices in turn partly reflect the demand coming through from China and India. And we also heard from John Hawksworth earlier about population, didn't we, that you know, population growth was important too. But, but if we go back to your analysis of the uh, commodity prices, uh, is there going to be commodity scarcity in, in the future? You talked about how in the question session that, that actually the defining point of this technological revolution was that we didn't really have technological advance. We had technological replication. Uh, India, China wanting cars, wanting to fly too. Um, it's not a great outlook. Well, it's not perfect unless, of course, you happen to be a commodity producer, in which case um, you'll do very, very well out of this because of the rising commodity prices. Um, but I think it simply reflects an, an underlying principle of economics, which is that we do indeed live in the world of scarce resources. We've forgotten about that over the last 50 or 60 years because effectively the Western world had almost like a monopoly access to those scarce resources. Now things are changing in China and India. Um, relative prices of all these things begin to shift, and uh, some countries benefit and others tend to lose out. And what about that phrase, emerging tilts? Well, that's a very simple point, that uh, when you look at uh, global growth these days, increasingly it's tilting towards the emerging world. Um, More and more of the growth that we see in the global economy is from China, from India, from Russia, from Brazil, and many other emerging nations, and less and less of it is from the States and Europe. Uh, And what this really means is that over the next 20 or 30 years, you're going to end up probably with China as the biggest economy in the world, the U.S. probably in second place, India in third place. But this is a really dramatic shift in relative economic size over the next few decades. And you talked about the 50 years of progress and 10 years of progress and applied that to to China and India, didn't you? Yes. Well, if you look at uh, China, it's been an extraordinary story. Back in 1980, uh, Chinese per capita incomes were the equivalent of those in the U.S. back in 1790. Uh, by last year, Chinese per capita incomes were equivalent to those in the U.S. in 1940. So basically you're seeing a, a catch-up coming through that the China is achieving every 10 years, which took the U.S. every 50 years to achieve. And India? Uh, India is achieving every 10 years what the U.S. took 30 years to achieve. So both of them are going at the rate of knots. Now, uh, Michael, you looked at Russia, didn't you? And, and in previous CBAM conferences, we've heard from people on Russia, people haven't really had that much confidence because of the political instability there. But, but now, actually, um, you said that you've invested in, in Russia and it's, 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 it's knowledge economy, it's education, which is universally spread all over the country, which is impressive. I think there's a tendency for people to focus on top-down rather than bottom-up matters. And the top-down in Russia has uh, has been controversial because the country is still struggling with the fact that it's no longer a political superpower. 
but the bottom-up story has been uh, consistently strong. Uh, there's been a generational change that's really transformed the quality of management teams and entrepreneurs, and uh, that's resulting in a lot of uh, rapidly growing companies that still have big potential to grow. And on the political side, uh, I don't understand really what your question is about political instability. I think that Russia is actually one of the you most... Did, you did actually yeah. say that actually if you were in politics, you didn't make much money. But, but if you were in, in business, that was fine. And almost, you know, th- there was a divide between the two. Career prospects, much better in business and industry. Um, you're not going to make a lot of money in politics. Well, the political situation in Russia is what it is, but it's certainly the most important thing for business is predictability. And actually, it's one of the most predictable uh, political regimes or environments uh, among major global economies emerging or developed. Uh, I think the, the real issue or the challenge is about the role of state companies, uh, which are, are, are uh, inc- increasingly active in the economy in some ways uh, which are unhealthy. And I wish that the pendulum in that respect would be swinging back towards more uh, more market-oriented. But I think that uh, state, state companies will never be a huge percentage of, the, of most sectors of the economy. But, you know, outside of oil and gas and banking and a few other sectors, the, the, the dominant players are mostly private sector. But that is the impressive thing, because you know, we can all remember in our living uh, histories uh, the, the coming down of the Berlin Wall, what's happened in Russia, but, but it's put in place financial structures and institutions. It, it's now, uh, if you like, got supermarkets where you used to be allocated your cheese and vodka rations for the day. Tremendous change. I've seen it over 20 years, especially uh, – there's huge superficial changes if you look at the points that you mentioned about retail, about the type of products. My wife is Russian, and she tells a story about when uh, the first time her father brought home a Snickers bar. It was in about 1990. They put it on the table, and they left it there for three days just to wait in anticipation about how great it was going to be. Uh, and today, if you, you know, walk around Moscow, you would be amazed at the penetration of modern type of consumer goods, retail formats, and just the transformation mentality that's happened with the generation, the generation of Soviet people who've left and the new Russian people who've grown up and become accustomed to living in a normal market economy. Now, I know in terms of all we've heard today about Brazil, um, India, China too, I mean, you invest in Russia because you believe in the people. You called it a, a bottom-up story, what's happening in, in Russia today, and, and it's got the best people and the best brains. Is that the story of Russia and investment? Well, fortunately, it's not either or. It's not that you, know, you have to pick only one country in the world, and I do believe in the growth, the growth story in China and India, I do think is unstoppable if you you know there will be some ups and downs but if you take a 30 or 40 or 50 year view countries like China and India are truly unstoppable but one thing the last uh, couple of cycles has shown is that economic growth and investment returns are not always correlated if they were if that, if that economic growth was the only thing that mattered then every fund in China and India would be the best performing funds in the world over the last 20 years and that's just not the case there's a lot of other things that make a difference including the, the type of human capital and also the supply and demand of capital. So uh, uh, I think that Russia, if, if China and India do succeed and, and do continue to grow the way that I think they will, Russia will probably be one of the biggest beneficiaries because of its depth and breadth of resources and also its proximity to those countries which are increasingly importing uh, resources. So where will it be in that league table of economies in 20 years' time? You know, we're going to have uh, China, the USA, Japan being overtaken, Brazil in fourth place. Where will Russia be? 
I think in 15 or 20 years, Russia will look a lot more like Western European countries than it does, like, of course, like China or India. And it, during that period of time, there's still a convergence or a catch-up uh, factor in most key sectors of the economy that are going to propel rapid growth. But 15 or 20 years from now, Russia will be largely converged. And uh, it's, it's different. It has a shorter runway than, for example, China or India, which might have 50 or 100 years of convergence. And after, after that sort of next 15, you know, 20 years, maybe it's a little bit less, uh, is over, then Russia is really going to have to implement deep reforms in order to continue to grow at the sort of rates that they are now. And that's a question mark. And we're not getting the right headlines about Russia. You said that, didn't you, as your sound bite. Uh, we're living at a time of great volatility in the world. We've seen uh, the Murdoch empire this week. We had the banks, uh, the MPs, uh, and now the press, but also a great business, the, the Murdoch business. That volatility in the future. So we're looking for stable regimes to invest in. Has Russia got that political stability? Well, the first thing to say is that when you're an investor, it, uh, it, almost, always, it almost always pays to bet against the conventional wisdom. And, uh, you know, the, when, when markets are euphoric and people only see the good facts about a country, ch- chances are all the assets and all the businesses are extremely expensive. So, you know, I, I'm delighted with the fact that the consensus or the conventional wisdom about Russia the last couple of years has been focused only on the country's bad facts. We've been buying like crazy, and everything we bought in the last 10 years now looks like it was a fantastic decision. So uh, at the same time, history repeats itself, and I can see the cycle is coming back. And I can guarantee you that in, within the next five years, there, the conventional wisdom on Russia is going to shift again, and it probably will shift every five years or so you know, for the next couple of decades. So I think that's the important thing if you're an investor. Stephen, a nice point to bring you in to have a chat together. Um, invest against the, the trends? Is, is that what you do? Invest counterintuitively or, or perhaps spread your bets? Uh, well, you want to do both in one sense. Uh, investing counterintuitively is always for the brave person. Sometimes it works well, sometimes it doesn't work quite so well. Uh, spreading your bets is absolutely desirable. Anyone wants to make sure that not all the eggs are in one basket. The only problem these days is that for financial investors, uh, markets are so closely correlated with one another that it actually becomes more and more difficult to spread one's bets in that particular way. So, yes, absolutely, people have to invest in emerging market themes, uh, but working out what those themes specifically might be is perhaps slightly more tricky. There's a natural reaction uh, that says, well, if China's growing quickly, invest in Chinese stocks. That really hasn't worked very well over the last 20 or 30 years. But there are other ways of playing the same story. For example, if China and India are growing quickly, then commodity prices rise. You might want to invest in commodities or commodity companies. You might think about the likelihood of their exchange rates rising. So you might want to think about investing in exchange rate appreciation vis-a-vis the U.S. dollar. It's also worth thinking about Western companies who may have a specific strategy of investing in the emerging world. They actually become less and less Western over time. All these things, I think, are actually quite important at this stage. And... CBAM, the global conference we've had today, the, the number of experts from across the globe that it's brought together. We heard Christos Patelis, the director of the CBAM Centre, talk about sustainability and, and how they were talking about sustainable economic growth way before um, anybody else 15 years ago when they were formed with the support of Diageo. The importance of conferences like this, getting experts together to, if you like, share your knowledge at a time of great volatility in the world. How important is that, Michael? The unique thing about CBAM is the way it brings together business people and academics in the same forum to talk about uh, common issues. And uh, there aren't that many, uh, there aren't that many uh, organizations like it. So I, I always find it interesting, and I, I think that the topic today is very timely. 
and the list of speakers uh, uh, really brings together a lot of different perspectives on, on important issues. Stephen, you've learned a few things this morning. Oh, I have. Um, I've learned uh, to be very optimistic about Russia. Uh, I'm not sure if I fully agree with everything, but uh, I, I do think that this is a, a fantastic event in the sense that, um, as we just heard, that you're bringing together academics, business people, uh, making sure that the people in one sense have an important stake in the future of all these countries are discussing things with each other, and I think you can learn an awful lot from that. And the thing I'm curious about, we heard from the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge University, but Cambridge, it's its knowledge economy, the biotech industries, it's, it's in Brazil, uh, people want a Cambridge e- education as well. But, but you particularly, Michael, talked about that knowledge, you know, the bottom-up revolution, but needing not just large populations, not just consumers who can buy products, but actually educated people to lead the revolutions on behalf of your country's growth prospects. Russia, sadly, doesn't have enough people but it, the quality of the people are really uh, uh, world-class, and the quality of the education has probably dipped a bit from Soviet periods. But even today, the last 10 years, for the international university computer programming competition, there's like an Olympics of computer programming among the world's leading universities, including Cambridge, MIT, etc. Six of the last 10 years, the winning university has been a Russian university. So even in the post-Soviet period, the quality of education in Russia remains among the best in the world. Well, this is partly a numbers game in the sense that although China and India are not producing the proportion of graduates that might be the case in other parts of the world, the actual numbers being produced, of course, are enormous simply because their populations are so large. So when you look at the number of graduates coming out of Chinese universities, it far exceeds what's taking place in the UK. So I think we have to accept that we are seeing a dramatic improvement in educational attainment across the emerging world, exactly what you'd expect, associated with rising real incomes, and it really creates a kind of virtuous circle for these countries. And just to end up on a point you said, no real technological innovation, just technological replication? Well, there is clearly some innovation going on, but I think the balance of the source of growth has shifted away from innovation towards replication, um, and that's why we have this pressure on scarce resources. Uh, But it is worth stressing, I think, that uh, when you think about things like climate change, for example, uh, the Chinese uh, seem to have a long-term plan for climate change, which perhaps is missing in other parts of the world. So it may be that in certain areas of industry we're going to see the Chinese leaping forward compared with what we see in the Western world. Can I add one brief point on that? I'm not sure I agree with you on the point about Uh, technology, in particular as it relates to commodities, because one area where there has been real breakthroughs in the last 20 years is in the uh, discovery and exploitation of natural resources. The types of uh, oil fields, for example, which are commercially exploitable today, which never would have been, it's not just because the oil price has gone up, but because the cost of finding and extracting oil, especially in remote locations, has gone down significantly. Yeah, my point there is not so much that uh, we're seeing a lack of resources or indeed that there's no technological innovation. It's more the fact that um, the innovation is not going through fast enough to cope with the rise in demand, which is why you end up with these rises in demand. And finally, really finally this time, but that sustainability world, you referred to it in terms of the environment. It is important for all the countries. You know, we talk about the league table, who's better, who's best, who's going to overtake, who, when. But actually, we all need a sustainable world and a sustainable business environment. I agree. I agree too. (laughs) Well, here at the CBAM Global Business Symposium on BRICS and beyond, Stephen King, Michael Calvey, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today. I've enjoyed it so much. Go to lunch as they wrap up the presentations here in the lecture theatre. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.